Nina was about to become a wife in the presence of 300 people, most of whom she had never met. I felt self-conscious standing there on the sidelines, the older unmarried cousin, aware that people were glancing over at me. Yes, to see what I was wearing, but mostly to detect any hint of pain or jealousy on my face, as yet another younger cousin married. I closed my eyes for a second, inhaled, found my center, the way they taught me to do, at my Wednesday evening Hatha yoga class. Then I lifted up my smile and made it stay. "'Your turn next,' said Auntie Mona, my mother's second cousin, who was standing next to me. She grinned, revealing a space between her two front teeth the size of East Timor. That gap was considered a sign of good luck.' Any Indian face-reader worth his chapati dinner knew that the wider the space, the greater the fortune. "'Don't worry, Beatty. It will be your turn soon,' Auntie Mona consoled, patting me on the back. "'God will listen to your prayers. It is all karma. Tsk, tsk. I allowed her to comfort me, as I had learned to do all these years, and noted how miraculous it was that my self-esteem wasn't completely annihilated by now. Since arriving in Bombay a week ago, I had been on the receiving end of many things. Advice, sympathy, concern. But mostly it was pity and consolation. Now, coming from Antimona, these sentiments were delivered with the same gravity as a diagnosis of Lou Gehrig's disease. My relatives never thought to ask about my interesting and independent life in New York, what I did there, who my friends were, or whether I'd scored a ticket to the producers when Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane were still in it. Instead, it was incessant. Why aren't you married yet? I turned towards Nina, who really was the sweetest thing, looking like a dream in her wedding sari. This was pink too, but a celebratory pink. Deeper, richer, embellished with thick gold, a bridal bonus. The top of her gleaming black hair, parted down the center, was covered with the same fabric. Her smooth white forehead dotted with tiny flecks of red paint in an arched design, spliced in the middle by a gold and diamond bindi. Her hands, lavishly hennaed, reached up to push back a wisp of hair that had fallen into her half-closed eyes. Nina was praying and blushing, swooning from the heat, she and her groom were sitting in front of a small bright orange fire, both sets of parents by their side, deep in their own thoughts. As our family priest, Meiraj Gerda, uttered thousands of Sanskrit words that no one but he understood. The ceremony was about done, and now came my favourite part, where the groom slipped his finger into a pot of sindoor and traced it down his new wife's hair parting. The gesture seemed to say, You're mine now. We belong to each other. He looked at her with something that appeared to be pride mixed with awe. While it might not yet be love, the happiness seemed real, born of gratitude. He also seemed relieved. He had done it, found the perfect bride. Now the fun would start. Later they would spend their first night together and kiss for the first time. The groom had won Nina's heart without really trying. She'd fallen for his looks, his height, 
five foot eleven, his casual, easy-going demeanor. It was an arranged match. They had met twice and then gotten engaged. That had been five weeks ago. The couple stood, poised to garland one another and exchange rings. Nina bowed her head before her new husband, who looked upon her excitedly, like an archaeologist who had just stumbled across some rare artifact and couldn't wait to examine it. Within seconds, they were surrounded by waves of well-wishers, who hugged, kissed, shook hands, and leaned in to see up close just how big the necklace was that Nina's parents had given her. Everybody wanted to know the precise carat weight of the marquee diamond her groom had placed on the slender ring finger of her left hand. It was time for me to make my way through the pack of people towards the couple. En masse, they smelt of sweat.